Well, hey, folks, and welcome to the first ever episode of Return to the Telepodcast, a show about terrible horror movie sequels. Uh, my name is Bryce Patterson, and I'm joined by my dear friend and co-host, Kevin Serrano Echevarria. How are you hey, doing, Hey, Kevin? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm surprised you pronounced my last name correctly. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we're we're on air, Kevin. We're, we're you know, professionals making a podcast. Yeah. Um, cool. So basically, here's uh, the name of the game, listeners. Um, each episode of this show is going to look at a really, like an iconic horror film that has a famously shitty sequel. And so the goal is to look at, you know, the original film and figure out, you know, what is, what's fundamental to this? You know, why was this successful? And, you know, why do we still love it today? And then we're going to look at the ways that the sequel, you know, totally missed the point of that. Um, and then at the end of each episode, Kevin and I are going to pitch each other ideas for stories that, you know, could have been told instead. Yeah. Um, so can you remind me, like, what's our, what's our deal? How do, uh, how do you and I know each other? So our deal is we know each other because we both go to SIU. We're in the same MFA program. We pretty much started to like get to know each other last year, year and a half-ish. Uh, not really the first year because of the pandemic, uh, which no one had time to socialize with. But we're in the same MFA class. Yeah, so Kevin and I are both fiction students. So we're both writers and storytellers. And we're both huge horror fans, which is kind yep. of, you know, where where this podcast comes from. Um, so, Kevin, to start us off, what are just a couple of horror movies that you really love? A couple of horror movies I really love. So I really like the a lot of the classics. My classics, I mean, like classics. So, like, Dr. Caligari, um, Nosferatu. Absolutely love those. German Expressionism, just as a genre. Amazing. Um, besides that, Alien, Carrie um black swan even though it's received terribly i personally love it i love a good movie about a crazy ballerina and there are not enough of those yeah no black swan i think is 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 great i love the weird like kind of underlying body horror element yeah. of it i love yeah. it it's supposedly based off of perfect blue which is another horror movie that i really love but like after seeing it Really, the only thing that they have in common is Crazy Pretty Girl as the main character. So kind of like how Texas Chainsaw Massacre is like based on a true story, uh, even though it's like a serial killer oh, in I Wisconsin. Have a, I have a lot to say about that. I have a lot to say about that, but I will, I will save that. I will save that cultural appropriation for a little bit later. Yeah, yeah, we'll have, we'll have that conversation. So on the docket this week, we're going to take a look at Toby Hooper's 1974 classic, The Texas Chainsaw... Uh, <laughs> already got the title wrong. I love it. Yeah, great, great. Yeah, we're off to a good start. Um, so yeah, we're going to take a look at Toby Hooper's 1974 classic, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and its 1986 sequel, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Um, so Kevin, what's what's your history with these movies and just generally how do you feel about them? So I haven't seen either of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies until literally last night when you came over and we watched them together. Uh, it was also the first time you came over to my apartment in general, which felt very foreboding in retrospect, just coming over to my house to watch horror movies. Uh, <laughs> listeners, I think everyone should know that Kevin's couch has been like torn to shreds by his dog. Yes. So we were essentially sitting on like what felt like a decayed kind of church pew. 
It felt um, right. It felt very right. It scanned with the movie for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, but besides that, my history with it is I just knew that it was based off of uh, Ed Gein, which being a Wisconsinite, local legend, we 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 don't stand him, but we we know him. <laughs> He's a, an important member of the community. Yeah, he he was a very important member of the community. His contributions live on to this day. Yeah, I uh, so I'd seen both of these before, um, but my first experience with uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was when I was in high school. I think I was sixteen or seventeen. We had a movie night at a friend's house, uh, and we watched the original Saw and the remake of Texas Chainsaw back to back. That's a good um, combo. Yeah, and there's there's a moment at the end of the film where the Sally character, you know, she's seen all of her friends just like mm. brutally murdered, and she's. I think she's just gotten into uh, a massive truck and is getting like driven away. And at the last second, Leatherface jumps out and like chainsaws the side of the truck. Yeah. Um, and so we're in this dark room. It's a group of teenagers and there's this scream and everyone thought it was the girl next to me who then just kind of broke down laughing and like turned and was like, Bryce, was that you? Um, <laughs> and it was, and I, I genuinely like didn't even realize that I had like shrieked. Love that. I'm, but I'm then, sad that I didn't hear that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a pretty iconic moment of my youth. I bet. Um, yeah, so basically, well, let's start with, I'll summarize the original film just really briefly, and then we can talk about, you know, like, what are the things, uh, you know, what are the things that make it iconic? Um, I think one way we can look at this is, you know, what are the, like, the non-negotiable elements of the story that you would need to have a sequel that, you know, genuinely kind of... Um, carries on the story that's been started there. Right. Sally Hardesty and her brother Franklin are on a road trip through Texas to visit the graves of their grandparents, which have been recently vandalized. They decide to stop by the old family home nearby and end up accidentally wandering into a house owned by the Sawyers, a family of cannibals. The characters get picked off one by one and eventually Sally escapes. Is that is that kind of cover the, the basic beats? That's a fair gist of it that covers like the bare bones of what happened cool so i guess kevin for you like what are the things about the original movie that that feel really important to it you know i'm trying to think of like the negotiables for it and like when i do that i go to the title but even then it doesn't really make sense because like texas chainsaw and massacre like i don't think it has to be set in texas personally i actually think that was a fault of the movie that I will get into a little bit later. There wasn't a lot of chainsaw. Like it was mostly sledgehammer. There was yeah. one there was one chainsaw death. And like I, I guess like just because like Texas Sledgehammer Massacre doesn't really have the same ring to it as Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But there wasn't that many chainsaws. Yeah, yeah. No Texas Sledgehammer Massacre, it does not roll off the tongue. Not really no. Um, yeah. You know, for me, I think the the thing that I love about Texas Chainsaw that feels pretty unique, right? So this, you know, predates the big slasher boom that right. Halloween kicks off in 1978. Mm-hmm. Um, and those films are very much, right? So like Michael Myers is hunting down teenagers. Jason right. Voorhees is hunting down teenagers. Yeah. And something I love about Texas Chainsaw is that like Leatherface is really, he's reactive, you know? He's, yeah. Um, 
kind of, he's consistently the one who's threatened. And I think right. that adds a really interesting dynamic to the film that like the, the villain is sort of just doing his own thing and right. His own thing is, is gross and morally reprehensible, I guess. Hmm. But I think that makes him really interesting and complicated in a way that, you know, other kind of slasher villains, I think feel much more like, okay, he's just pure evil and he's just out to, you know, slay some horny teenagers. He's very much like a monster movie villain that could only exist in a standard ground state like Texas. Like, he only kills people who invade his home. Which, like, I mean, I can't blame him that much. Especially when those people are annoying, horny teenagers. who have a very good fashion sense, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, yeah, no, we we talked a lot about the outfits in this movie. And even Leatherface, right? Um, you know, there's Iconic. the scene where he's, um, yeah, he's kind of playing the, like, 50s suburban housewife. Oh, I love it. I love it. He is a drag icon, and I live for that. He is giving us, he's giving us housewife realness, and I live for that. Yeah, there's a, there was a moment last night, I'm going to read a quote direct from Kevin's mouth. <laughs> Honestly, Leatherface is kind of serving that bread. She was. She was serving it. She was giving it. She was giving us all we needed. Yeah, well, and I think that that speaks to something that's really interesting about Leatherface. Um, so, like, not only so um, very, like, reactive kind of, of villain, but also somebody who slips between all of these different roles, right? Like, we were talking yeah. about how they're kind of non-binary in the film. Kind of. Kind um, of. In a really weird sense, yes. I, although I'm not really sure how you would define Leatherface's gender identity. I'm not sure you could even ask Leatherface's gender identity. I'm not sure that they, they, that they even know what that would be. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, it's it's funny, even like we've slipped into using like they, them pronouns for Leatherface, right. um, which I mean, I guess historically, we've uh, he's always been kind of talked about as male or they've always been talked about as male. Right. Yeah, so other kind of elements that to me feel really like fundamental I mean, I, I think like something I love about the original Texas Chainsaw, it's just beautifully shot. The sound design, I think, is really interesting that there's very little actual music. It's yeah. largely, you know, just kind of industrial sounds like the revving of the chainsaw, the um, banging of, of the hammer on, <laughs> on the bowl near the end, and then just the horrible screaming. Um, but I think, you know, I've heard it described as Texas Chainsaw kind of mimics almost like a snuff film. Oh, yeah. um, that it feels very cinema verite. It's very, um, the, the, the music and the sound elements feel diegetic to the mm. world where they exist. And I think that's a really beautiful, really interesting thing about the film is it ends up feeling very stripped back and there's not right. a lot of artifice in how we're experiencing it. Yeah, you can really tell that Hooper just got out of art school when he made Texas Chainsaw. Like, there are so many moments where I'm just like, that's an art school shot. Like, this person very clearly made this to get a grade or, like, is used to making things just to get a grade. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting, right? Because, you know, it's this tiny, tiny, low-budget film. Right. But, like, there are so many shots from it that, like, I would have as a poster up my, on my wall, uh, oh, yeah. which I think would be, like, a red flag if somebody comes over and is like, oh, yeah, where's that from? Like, oh, yeah, I would... That? I would not. I would not want to spend time in that house. Yeah. Well, and actually, I, that leads us to a great uh, kind of next step with this, right? That right. The, the set design is so interesting and cool, and I think there's both like it's both beautiful and kind of disgusting, right? Um, and I think it's very much, you know, and I, this is I guess common across a lot of horror cinema, but it's it's very much grounded in that feeling of like 
these kids have gone somewhere they don't belong. You know, they've crossed over a threshold. Hmm. Um, and I think that's very much another thing that I would say is, is, is fundamental to the Texas Chainsaw. And it, it kind of links into the reactivity of Leatherface, um, that it's all about kind of people crossing from the, the normal world into this kind hmm. of nightmare world. And that's true of, you know, both the original and then also the sequel. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely go from like, rural well at least in the first one they go from weird open rural texas where literally nothing is going on into just like essentially a a slaughterhouse quite literally and deliberately a human slaughterhouse right well it's it's interesting too because of the way it's masked you know like the outside of the sawyer's house Hmm. just looks like kind of you know a, a a rural southwestern home yeah um and so it has this kind of veneer of something that's maybe safe or at least recognizable. Right. Um, and then like the moment they cross over the threshold into the house, it's something entirely different. Oh yeah. 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 So then the one last thing that I think to me feels, I, I guess, I guess really fundamental to the film is that focus on family. Um, so both the Hardesties, so Sally and Franklin being siblings that are going to their grandparents grave site and then uh end up going to their grandparents house which is next door to the sawyers mm-hmm. um but then the sawyer family itself right so we have grandpa who's that just horrible kind of desiccated corpse <laughs> um we have leatherface playing the role of kind of the teenage son or the child of son right. um and then also the housewife you know he kind of or they kind of move back and forth across these boundaries mm-hmm. and i think that family element is another thing that makes Texas Chainsaw feels so unique, or it, I guess it, it feels fundamental to the story that it's telling that we're we're looking at these different families. Yeah, it feels very much like a desecration of the normal family structure. If I'm allowed to like use ten dollar words like desecration of family structure, it's pretty much just like they they literally invited like Sally over. It, it felt like they invited like Sally over to their family dinner except that she was being the thing that was going to be eaten right yeah i mean it's that classic joke about right like having friends for dinner right. um or that land before uh land before time episode i don't know if you oh, yeah. watched that show yeah yeah friends for dinner don't want to be oh uh, yeah okay we'll cut that um <laughs> but yeah yeah i think it, it, it does this really interesting thing of kind of mirroring sort of, yeah, like suburban white American culture, or rural right. white American culture. Right. Uh, and very much, I think whiteness is central to the film in a way. Um, I mean, all, all of the characters are white, so. Yeah, well, something we talked about last night, right, is you have these teenagers who just like walk into a stranger's house looking oh, for God, gasoline. Yeah. yeah, that would never happen if any of the characters were not white, especially in rural Texas. If a non-white character just like came up to a random house in rural texas they would not live to tell the tale yeah and i think that's that's really particular to um i mean it's so common in in slasher films right like there's this kind of like white suburban naivete of sort of like yeah we'll go to the you know weird camp out in the middle of nowhere and try and bone like everywhere we can it'll be fine yeah pretty much yeah that would never happen uh if you were not white absolutely uh so kevin would you summarize Okay, uh, let me jump back for a second. Um, So I think those are kind of the fundamental things, right? That we have this film that's deeply nihilistic um, about crossing into this place that you don't belong and then 
disturbing something that lives there that's yep. kind of variable um and you're it, it mirrors it mirrors or mimics the kind of classic like white American family structure yeah. in this really strange, perverse way. Yeah. I would also say you need horny, idiotic teens. Yeah. I think that's just like, let's <laughs> set that as a given for every slasher movie ever made. I mean, pretty much. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we'll, we'll start from that point. So then let's talk about Texas chainsaw massacre part two. Okay. Um, <laughs> Give us the summary. What happened? Uh, I will try my absolute best. This movie is a fucking mess and a half. Um, so from what I can tell of the movie, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, you have the main characters who are Sally. Uh, oh, not, not Sally. That's the first one, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's the first one. So you have the main characters who are um, Stretch, who is a radio host. Uh, and lefty who is a kind of like a for a texas ranger sort of i think that he's supposed to be like a former texas ranger but he very much acts like the law in the entire movie uh which i don't understand how he has access to while going into a um a crime scene um and then like following a, a serial killer and everything else and pretty much has so many resources when he's not even in the police force anymore. It's very confusing. Yeah, he's kind uh, of baffling. Yeah, he's a very baffling character. But you have um, Stretch and you have Lefty. They're both hunting the Sawyer family. They meet each other after Sally has like a recording or get or acquires a recording. I guess records a recording. I don't know of like Leatherface killing two teens. Uh, Lefty's been after the Sawyer family uh, for a while. Um, eventually, they, the Sawyer family, uh, end up going to the radio station that uh, Stretch works at. They try to kill her. Leatherface is weirdly horny towards Stretch and does not kill her. Uh, and after they leave, Stretch like bafflingly just follows them to their lair in an abandoned like Alamo themed theme park, which I don't know. I'm not from Texas. I've never stepped foot in Texas quite obviously since I'm alive. Uh, so I don't <laughs> even know. <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing, um, but that's where the Sawyers are living just below a massive Alamo themed theme park. She follows them there. Hijinks ensue. Uh, Lefty is also there. He tries to tear the whole fucking thing down. There's like a chainsaw duel. Oh yeah. Um, there's a there's a very phallic like chainsaw sword fight uh, between Lefty and Leatherface. Uh, a grenade just goes off towards the end, uh, and Sally kills one of the Sawyers uh, at the end with a chainsaw and the last last shot is literally just her like rockying the chainsaw i don't know how else to describe it just does a rocky pose while she's screaming she's like ah while she just like rocks a chainsaw yeah it's a funny you know it kind of is mirroring the ending of the original film where leatherface is just like wildly swinging his chainsaw around after right. sally's escape then we just have uh stretch kind of doing the same thing at the top yeah. of a tower in this Alamo amusement park yeah. thing. 
it's really it's a very strange movie. There's also I, there's also a whole uh, chili subplot that I forgot about. Yeah, but it's just like the Sawyers have a chili business that they make chili out of human meat, and they won a chili contest for it. And I I don't know I don't know. It felt very weird. It felt very surreal in the worst way possible. Uh, but I mean, it felt very Texan. Uh, I can't imagine anything more Texan than a chili cook-off. Yeah, I mean, it does hit your points of, right, it's Texas, chainsaws, and a massacre. They got um, all of them. It, they they did make up for the first movie where they did not get many of those things. Yeah, it's um, it's a weird one, right? Because, so tonally, right, it goes for this kind of black comedy vibe. And yeah. I I mean, I would say I think it's pretty hit or miss on that. Um, mostly it, myths, I would say. Yeah. The, the first <laughs> hour is just agonizingly slow. I remember you turning to me partway through and just being like, bitch, where's Leatherface? Bitch, where is um, Leatherface? It took like five, it took like two hours until we got to see Leatherface minus the like beginning scene, which like yeah. was out. It was what I was expecting the entire time. And then we just go into this chili cook-off weird subplot. And I was like, are we still watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Yeah. And I think that's honestly like, that's a great way to summarize the movie, right? Is that the whole way through, you're like, is this still Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Right. Um, and then finally, like, it kind of kicks ass at the end where you have the yeah. weird, like, duel of the fates with chainsaws and, like, mostly just that. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, I, I think I respect that it is a fundamentally radically different film. Um, you know, something I think we're going to talk about a lot on this right. show is how many horror film sequels are essentially just remakes where you just have, you know, uh, Freddy Krueger murdering a different set of teens, but the basic workings are, are essentially repeated again and again. Right. So I, I respect that it's different, but I think, I mean, both, I just don't love the movie, right. Right. On like a a basic level. And I think that like, there's something to be said that, uh, you know, I've heard it described like Texas Chainsaw 2 feels like it was made like not only by a different director from the original Mm -hmm. film, um, but by somebody who'd never even seen the original film. Oh yeah, absolutely not. It, it it bears zero resemblance to the film. The only thing that the film, uh, Texas Chainsaw 2, and the original one have in common uh, are chainsaws, the state of Texas, and booty shorts. Yeah, a lot of booty shorts. There were so many booty shorts. Yeah, when I, I think that there's like... That's yeah, that's about it. You know, and it, it's it's amazing because it's it's you know directed by Toby Hooper again. Right. Uh, I think he also co-wrote the script. So, you know, it is the original uh, you know creator or co-creator. Right. Um he just had a very rough like 12 years apparently. Yeah, you know, and I meant to do some research on like <laughs> like what the fuck happened Toby Hooper? Are you okay? Um <laughs> but I did not. Yeah, so I, I think you know we can use that as a jumping off point right that this doesn't really feel like a continuation of of the first film. No, not at all. Um, so, so let's talk about you know like what what would be a continuation? You know, what would be sure. a story that you could tell jumping off from from the original? So, I think probably the biggest one of the biggest things that I would change, even though it goes kind of against what Texas Chainsaw Massacre even means is I would not set it in Texas for many a reason. Biggest one probably being their accents are very hard to understand, especially in the first movie when most of the characters had very deep 
rural Texan accents or like, I was kind of straight and I'm like, and I, I, I interact with Southern people like on a daily basis and I was straining to understand what anyone was saying at all. Yeah. Well, actually that's a really interesting thought, right? That by changing the location, you can deal with a really different set of like ideas and themes. Right. right. Um, you know, if you move it and it becomes like the Chicago chainsaw massacre, that's a radically different story. Right. But, you know, in theory, you can still maintain some of those things that make the original interesting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That too would be kind of like a Home Alone situation where instead of like being in, I don't know where the original Home Alone is, like rural or suburban Illinois, it's in New York. Or instead of like being in rural Texas, maybe they could go to New York, be the New York Chainsaw Massacre, although I'm pretty sure they have those like every other weekend. So. Yeah, well, actually, I, I mean, I, I think that's, it makes me think of, uh, is it Jason X is the Friday the 13th movie where Jason goes to space? Oh, right, yeah. Or um, I think there's even one where it's like, what, like, Jason takes Manhattan? Uh, I love it. I love that. There needs to be more horror movies set in New York. Yeah, I mean, it does, right, it does kind of give you an opportunity to think about, so, like, the Sawyers are able to remain basically... Uh, you know, they're able to live the lives they do because they're out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, I think even something as simple as being like, well, what happens if you move them to like the Louisiana Bayou or to the mm. Florida Keys? Or you know, to Wisconsin, by... where the movie is inspired by. <laughs> so Leatherface meets Ed Gein. They fall in love. Of course. I would support them. I would go to their wedding. I would officiate their wedding, actually. I would, I'd send a gift, but like probably from a distance. That's valid. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a really interesting start. What else kind of, like, stands out to you as, like, potential ways to, like, continue the story on? So, I very much... What I appreciated, I think, about the first Texas Chainsaw was kind of, like, the tone and the artistry of it a lot. Yeah. Like, it was very much, like, trying to do something that, at least, like, in the 70s wasn't really done yet. Like, the slasher format wasn't really solidified at that point yet and i really liked that it kind of set a lot of these uh, cliches into motion but like in the second movie it kind of feels like they fall into a lot of the cliches and it kind of feels like they're trying to get away from the cliches at the same time like they're not horny teenagers anymore it's just a random hot girl (laughs) uh, who's running away from the murderer which is its own cliche uh, I very much liked what like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street did for the sequel, where instead of like a hot teenage girl being chased around, it's like a very queer coded boy instead. So maybe just like changing that format around slightly, I think would be uh, a good idea. Continuing on, and also just not making it a black comedy, I think <laughs> would also make it so much better. Yeah, it was. Um... It's a weird decision. And I think that, that there's something really interesting there, right? That like when you change the identities of the people involved, that has like a roll-on effect. Right. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it's it's interesting with the original film being so incredibly white. I think there's one person of color who appears and they, I don't know if they even have any lines of dialogue, right? Um, the original film? Was there? I don't think there was any. I think it's the the guy who's driving like the truck at the end. Uh, oh yeah, that's really it. That's it. 
Yeah, and he sort he has, of disappears too, right? Like, um, he has zero Sally. dialogue. He just runs the truck over a fucking James Franco dude. Yeah, yeah, that Meth- weird uh, James Meth- Franco lookalike. I think yeah. the hitchhiker is what uh, people call him. I call him Meth Head James Franco because that's what he reminds me of. He just runs yeah. him over. He just gets out of the car for, or gets out of the truck for absolutely no reason, even though it's been established that the chainsaw cannot saw through the truck. He just runs out and then just goes off screen and we never hear from him ever again. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's like a big, like commercial truck. Um, yep. Sally's trying to jump in Leatherface is chainsawing the shit out of the door, but isn't actually able to get her. Right. And then a different truck goes by and she hops into the truck bed and the original driver just kind of just vanishes. <laughs> and, and then Leatherface is just swinging the, ch- the chainsaw around alone. But I think, yeah, there's there's something about, right, like the, I, I think we said it earlier, right, like the white suburban naivete of, of the characters. Mm-hmm. When you shift that, then I think you have a much different, um, a much different story, right? Yeah. Like, I think BIPOC characters would probably be much less likely to wander into a random suburban home in Texas looking for gas. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That'd be way less likely. And even though it would make the story more interesting, it would also make it much harder to um, kind of set the plot into motion if nobody's going into Leatherface's home. <laughs> yeah, like how do you make a slasher where the characters are like intelligent and cautious? I don't. Pretty know. much, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that could happen. Well, so so something that stood out to me that um, so I've seen the original Texas Chainsaw. I think maybe like three or four times. Um, and I always forget that the kind of inciting incident of the story is this incident of grave desecration, right? The bodies are dug up and then arranged into this weirdly very kind of artful, like body sculpture. Yeah. Um, And the movie never really touches on it again, as far as I can remember. Right. It's just kind of like, there's this desecration and then we don't know if the Sawyers did that or if that was totally unrelated. I mean, I think because of the logic of storytelling, we assume that the Sawyers are somehow responsible. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but that's something that I wonder about as like a kickoff for a narrative, right? We have these people that are both cannibals that are eating people, but you know, what's behind the desecration of, of the grave? Like why? I mean, Leatherface just wants to be artistic. He's just trying to make a living selling stuff off of that, off of his Etsy shop. Yeah. We could do like Leatherface goes to art school. Leatherface um, goes to art school. I like that. Leatherface takes art school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's one of those things, like, I don't know what to do with it, right? Because, um, I mean, I think another strength of the original film is that it's very um, inscrutable on some level, right? We don't know Leatherface's deal. You know, one of the prequels tries to give him a backstory, and I think that's, I think it's a misstep, right? I think he's more interesting as an enigma. But to me, like, the sculpture element speaks to some kind of internality, you know, that there's, there's no benefit to it right? right they don't get to eat from it they don't get to make chili when they desecrate a grave and, and make a sculpture out of the bodies right. so so why why who knows i mean i do like as much as i have a lot of problems with the second film i do like that there were a lot more human sculptures and a lot more creative human sculptures like yeah all over the place yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, a funny thing. Like, so like the set design in the original film is is so 
beautiful and disgusting, I think abject is the term, something that you're both like attracted to and repulsed by at the same time. Right. I think that's the literary term for it. I don't know. I don't take literature classes. Yeah, it's cool. It's not like we're grad students in English or anything. Exactly. Um, but I, I, I think there's there's an interesting thing then when you move the setting to this absurd, yeah, Alamo, the theme park, um, <laughs> that, that you end up having kind of like a more carnival vibe. And I actually do really love that. You know, like I wonder, I think maintaining some of that carnival setup could be a really interesting, uh, it's, it, it's like a cool visual motif, I guess. Yeah. Um, that in a better sequel could have been cooler. It's very much trying to say something by placing the setting in an Alamo theme theme park. What exactly it's trying to say though, I'm not sure. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about that and I wonder if the idea is kind of that this theme park is the site of uh lefties kind of doomed last stand, which doesn't really, I mean, it, it, it holds up with the kind of like American mythology of the Alamo right. at the same time as it utterly falls apart if you have, you know, a, a better like historical understanding is, of the Alamo. Is Leatherface supposed to be just an angry Mexican then? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that's one way to read it. Um, I don't, I don't enjoy that reading, but okay. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't love it, but it exists, I guess. Um, so I, I kind of took this prompt in a slightly different way and I tried to just essentially outline what a potential other sequel would be for this film. (laughs) In the wake of the first film, the Sawyer family burns down their home and goes underground accidentally causing a much bigger fire. Um, so essentially they're trying to hide the evidence of the, um, the original film because Sally has escaped and gone to the authorities. Mm. So then the film itself follows a police duo sent to follow up on Sally's account of the events, as well as an arson team that's investigating this massive fire. And so then I imagine we're kind of jumping back and forth between the authorities, the Sawyer family, and Sally, who's recovering in a nearby mental institution. So then we see, you know, the Sawyers trying to survive kind of even more off the grid than before and gradually picking off these investigators that are invading their home. And then eventually they set out to get revenge on Sally for destroying their kind of like simple bucolic country lives. I like that. I, I liked very much. And I don't know. I I don't know how much like living off the grid was like a thing in the seventies, eighties. I imagine it wasn't very much of a thing yet, but like speaking to like 2020 sensibility, like making a horror movie where the, uh, monster is just this dude who's trying his best his libertarian best to live off the grid i think would be a really good idea yeah they're all like huge fans of like info wars at this point and like yeah leatherface has his own nfts (laughs) you know i wonder how the sawyers would handle covid i don't think they would handle it well except for leatherface he has like a whole thing covering up his mouth so i'm sure he'd be fine yeah i guess he's always masked up masking since 1974 1974 love it (laughs) yeah yeah maybe he gets really into making sourdough i could believe that you know as much as a as much as like a monstrous murderer leatherface is there's a very like childlike innocence just in his character that i feel like is explored 
a little bit too much in the second movie. Yeah, I think like Leatherface's like sexual awakening was not the direction I would have gone. No. He turns from this like um what I would call an angsty, confused teen in the first movie to an awkward, horny teen introducing his parent or introducing his girlfriend to his parents. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that I think that about covers it. Um you know, I'm really caught up. I'm so just coming back to my pitch. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm really caught up on this idea. So, so I love the idea of of having this wildfire essentially right. started by the Sawyers because I, I think you know one of the fundamental questions that the sequel doesn't answer the existing sequel is mm. how they couldn't find any evidence of what happened in the first I film. Hated that. There's a whole like. First of all. There's a whole fucking text scroll in both films that I hated. When it was like my first introduction to like the whole Texas Chainsaw franchise, and I didn't, and I was forced to read. Like I'm not watching a movie to read. This isn't Star Wars. Tim Hooper. Tim Hooper. <laughs> Tim Hooper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's funny that like we get like the Star Wars style text crawl, and then the weird like duel of the fates at the end. Literally, um, uh, I love it. Yeah, when we were watching it, we were uh, joking about, like, I've got the high ground, Anakin, don't try it. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> you underestimate my power. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, so this fire, right, we, we see them destroying evidence. But I also love the idea that, like, we're turning kind of this already pretty beat down rural Texas town into this just like blistered hellscape kind of um i think it sort of mirrors what i see happening to the sawyers that like their home has been destroyed and like again it's from the invasion of others and they're responding to that invasion of others i think one of the problems in the sequel is that it sets them as these very proactive you know they're out hunting they're out murdering teenagers right um And I think it loses that, you know, the original film is very much about these people in poverty who are subsisting in kind of the only way they can. Um, Maybe that's giving them too much credit, right? There's probably better ways than eating people. No, that's the only thing you can do when you're poor in rural Texas in the 70s. Kevin was an anthropology major, so you can trust I was. I was an anthropology major. I was not an anthropology major. I majored in English and Spanish. Oh, well, I take it back. Don't listen to Kevin, everyone. (laughs) But yeah, I think, you know, some of the, the central commentary of the film is sort of how desperate people turn on each other, you know, or I might be like reading that onto it. But I think that the the Sawyers are kind of the downtrodden of the film. Um, and I think by the sequel, that element is kind of lost. And I think as a result, the movie loses some of the heart of what made it so fascinating. Yeah. I don't know. I don't remember who the dude who named it Chili is called. I'm just going to call him Daddy Sawyer. <laughs> but Good Daddy old Daddy Sawyer. Sawyer. Good old Daddy Sawyer. He just turns into like a capitalist who has a thriving chili business in the second movie when in the first one he was just uh, a dude who owned a uh, small, out of the way gas station. Which never had any gas. Which never had any gas. Which in retrospect, we kind of know why he never had any gas now. Because it's gassing up uh, Leatherface's chainsaw? Exactly, yeah. 
Yeah, it's funny. It becomes almost like it's like an entrepreneurship story in the sequel. Right. Um, which, which if you think of, if you think about it, it very much fits like the trajectory of like society in general in the 80s. Yeah, it is almost like a like a Wolf of Wall Street kind of Gordon Gecko It's a it's a Leatherface takes on Reaganomics. Yeah, it, it, it makes me wonder, you know, so neither of us has seen uh, the third Texas Chainsaw. No. Maybe at that point they've started their own, like, corporate chili business. Um, when, is, when does the third one take place in? I honestly have no idea. I think it was released in the early 90s or, or late 80s. I'm not sure how close it was to the second film. I could see Leatherface being part of, like, a really edgy, like, grunge band. <laughs> Leatherface is there for the recording of Nevermind. Yeah, he was there. Leatherface was Kurt Cobain, actually. That explains so much. It truly does. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, I think we're we're getting to, like, <laughs> Leatherface is Forrest Gump, kind of. Like, how Leatherface responded to the 2016 election. I would much prefer Forrest Gump if Leatherface was Forrest Gump. Yeah, you know, uh, Confession of the Hour, I've actually never seen. I've seen maybe the first, like, 15 minutes of Forrest Gump. You are not missing a lot. I mean, that does actually beg an interesting question of, like, you know, if we take Texas Chainsaw and, the, you know, tie the sequel to the historical context that it's being made in, I think there is something to the kind of um, Reaganomics sort of angle. <laughs> But then I'm not sure from there for like uh, another movie, right? Like Leatherface responds to the Gulf War. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Leatherface post 9-11. <laughs> Leatherface in the uh, dot-com boom. Leatherface in the dot-com boom. I, would, I, I could see Leatherface getting into NFTs though. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe, I don't know. Now I'm thinking about Leatherface like Bitcoin mining. I could see that. I think definitely the like selling his arts and crafts on Etsy. Like there's there's a there's a story there. Oh yeah, I, I there was I, I I'm pretty sure there was actually like a thing about like some Tumblr witch who like got into a lot of trouble because she was actually trying to dig up real bones from a I think it was a Louisiana graveyard. Like that actually happened. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, that explains the beginning <laughs> of the original Texas Chainsaw. Uh, right. It wasn't the Sawyers. It was just some random woman with an Etsy store. It was just a random, a random, uh, random girl, random witchy girl who just wanted some human bones. And don't we all? Don't we all just want some human bones in our lives? Amen. Well, so, I mean, that feels like kind of a natural, some kind of closing point, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, there's something about, uh, thinking about the Sawyers as kind of victims of capitalism that right. maybe does actually come out in the second one, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. um, it's sort of them moving from being like the strong, struggling, repressed underclass to becoming mm -hmm. sort of the petty bourgeois, small business owners. Yeah. Um, yeah. The real Texas Chainsaw Massacre was capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for uh, doing this with me. Um, you are welcome. We haven't decided what movie we want to do for our next episode, but is there mm -hmm. anything that kind of stands out to you? I mean, we could do Alien, but the second Alien movie is actually really good. 
I mean, the third one's a piece of hot trash, though. So, I mean, that's always a possibility. Else could, could also do Cube, because you have not seen Cube. Oh, yeah. And I do love me some Cube. And Cube 2 is terrible. <laughs> See, okay, no, you're speaking my language. Um, and something I think we'll find as we explore this show more is, you know, we can also look at shitty remakes, shitty prequels, right. shitty soft reboots. Um, I haven't seen the new Scream film that came out recently. But oh, right. Yeah, I haven't either. I, I love I love the original Scream. Yeah, yeah, no, the original is just an absolute classic. And so I'm, I'm really intrigued. I even like the second one. So I'm intrigued to see, you know, we can always look at, uh, you know, different, different things outside of just sequels. But essentially, you know, I think horror has this, this problem of you have these incredible pieces of art that are created that then the real Texas Chainsaw Massacre of capitalism turns into these franchises that are just utter trash. And I think, right. you know, um, we can think really broadly about how we want to approach these things. Yeah. Yep, the, the Texas chainsaw of capitalism keeps spinning on. Return to the Telepodcast is a production of Silent Machine Studios, featuring music by My Silent Machine. If you enjoyed this episode, like, subscribe, do whatever else you usually do with podcasts, I don't know. Thank you for listening. <laughs>